Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Volume 11 of the Comedy Album Book Club. I'm the co-producer, Matt Ardill. I'm filling in for Jason DeLion, who can't be with us tonight. We just listened to Robin Williams' A Night at the Met. If you haven't already listened to it yourself, we recommend you stop right now and uh, give it a listen, then come back and join us for the discussion. Uh, Robin Williams is an Oscar-winning actor and comedian, studied at the Juilliard School, and has over the years appeared in... Over 108 television and film appearances, ranging from a dog in a movie with Simon Pegg uh, to Mrs. Doubtfire, One Hour Photo, and possibly for me, his most defining role, Mork from Ork, on Happy Days and later in Mork and Mindy. But he's also appeared in stage productions as varied as Waiting Waiting for Godot uh, with Steve Martin to Rajiv Joseph's Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Uh, His work has spanned the world of darkly serious to lightly comedic. Um, One of 20 students accepted into Juilliard in 1973, he attended on a full scholarship and was one of only two to be accepted into the John Houseman Advanced Program that year, Uh, the other being Christopher Reeves. Classmates included William Hurt and Mandy Patankin, and the energy of this period that he put out could be best described as manic. It carried into over to his work on stage with Vincent Canby, uh, critic, dis- describing it, the speed delivered the material so intense that it felt as though at any minute the creative process could reverse into a complete meltdown. His stand-up career was not without controversy. Starting in the 70s, um, he became somewhat of a legend for selling out huge venues uh, with, within minutes of announcing the dates. During his peak, he's noted to have uh, found the entire process of doing stand-up comedy very difficult. He relied heavily on character work and improvisation, often sliding into characters at breakneck speeds and flitting from one idea on stage to another. Um, now, the album that we listened to uh, was released uh, A Night at the Met, 
was released in 1986 and was his third official album. There are a few albums that predate that, but uh, this is his actual official album. They were bootlegs. It's sort of a breakneck journey through the politics of the day, his demons, and the wonders of fatherhood. Produced by David Steinberg and Brooks Arthur, it continued Williams's habit of collaborating with people who he knew who could bring out the best in him, and also marked his last major appearance in the 1980s, as he then went on to focus in on his film career, with Good Morning Vietnam being released the next year. So tonight we have Peter Hill and Sherilyn Johnson joining us. Peter is retired sketch comedian from Canadian Comedy Award nominees Approximately Three Peters and Beggar's Canyon, um, and former producer of the Toronto Comedy Sketch Festival. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And uh, Sherilyn is a veteran comedy journalist from uh, who has appeared in publications such as Vanity Fair, AV Club, and the Toronto Star, and has previously appeared, uh, graciously appeared with us to, to discuss the Smothers Brothers uh, live from the Purple Onion. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, Peter, uh, you voted on this album on our Facebook group um, as a album you'd be interested in hearing. So can you tell us what about it uh, drew you to this album? Um, this album is, is, for me, it's one of my foundational comedy experiences when I was when I was much younger so I'm you know I'm I'm almost 43 I was about 11 when this would have come out I was probably about 12 when I heard it and that was that was sort of a period where I was you know discovering Monty Python SCTV um it was probably just starting to segue into Saturday Night Live and this was one of those great audio comedy experiences that I, it was probably my first proper gateway into stand-up and listening, you know, I have memories of, of memorizing those jokes and, and, you know, and listening to it in prep for this. And again, just before we were doing this recording, uh, have been horribly reminded that I, I claimed a lot of those jokes as my own um, jokes <laughs> I, that I have forgotten the source yeah. of. And you weren't alone. It's a little meta when it comes to Robin Williams and his stand-up. It is, yeah, because it's and it's and there's there's probably also a personal connection, like in a weird roundabout way. Um, I always thought that that Robin Williams he had a he had a kind of laugh, uh, like that 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 almost shy. <laughs> you know, like inhaling type of laugh when he was being like just himself and, and his face and, and that kind of laugh reminds me a lot of my father. And so I remember when Robin Williams, you know, um, committed suicide when he passed away, uh, that was about three years after my father passed away. And it was just like, Oh my God, like sort of like dad, dad light, <laughs> you know, like, you know, went. So this album is sort of like it's childhood, there's a weird familial connection. Yeah. Um, and I would say that there are, there are joke and character styles and voices and, and whatever that, that kind of, you know, kind of got me thinking about comedy as something, as an outlet for myself. You know? And Sherilyn, how, how are, 
how are you connected to this album? How did it resonate with you? Uh, I played clarinet in the junior high band, and we drove on a bus from uh, Winnipeg to Banff uh, twice. We did it in grade 8 and grade 9. And at one point during those trips, I was like, this is a long damn ride back to Winnipeg overnight. Uh, so I figured I'd better buy myself some cassettes because what else were you going to, you couldn't read on a dark bus. You couldn't, what were you going to do? Uh, so I bought this album uh, and I bought uh, Stephen Wright's I Have a Pony on the same day. So very yeah, extreme. Yeah, you get much more different than those two. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I don't think I, I realized until... Uh, until we, you know, just listened to it before, uh, before we sat down that how much of it I had memorized, like how much of it I knew exactly what was coming next. Um, I must have listened to that cassette and I probably still have it in a box somewhere. I have nothing to play it on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I probably listened to it hundreds of times. Um, it's interesting though. It was a few years after it came out that I got it. So my order of absorbing his work is a little bit different. So I'd already seen Good Morning Vietnam. Um, I had already, I was already aware of him having a reputation for stealing because I'd read that in my dad's GQ comedy issue from 1989, (laughs) I think. I I was a typical young comedy nerd. Um, So I, I already knew a lot about him in a lot of ways and knew a lot of his work already. So... Um, I don't know if that, you know, if that changed the way I viewed that album or made me like it more. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was in heavy rotation for sure. Yes. For me, my dad had been using his material on me for years. So I listened to this album I'm like, dad, you're a hack. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I came about it sort of the same age as you and, uh, sort of it, it, these jokes were making the rounds of the playground when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old. Oh, yeah. And, it, just, and, and kids would use them and like, oh, and much like, you know, Robin said he, you know, joke sampled and uh, just learned from osmosis. And he's like, oh, you know, you hang around in these comedy clubs, you're, you, you, you kind of forget. You know, hmm. every kid claimed, oh, no, they made that, that, that joke. It was their joke. They didn't get it from Robin Williams. This is a difference of being growing up as a girl <laughs> with only female friends. We didn't do that on the playground. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like I was the only kid in my, well, I was the only kid in my social circle who cared at, at all about any of this. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, when I was uh, preparing for tonight, uh, I actually also watched the special, and it's it's really interesting because I actually found just structurally the album works better than the special. Um, his he's so hyperkinetic in his delivery, like he never yeah. stops for more than a couple of seconds. And he's like drenched in sweat too. Dr- right? yeah, yeah, just dripping, and like the and I mean in some cases it helps, like the Wells Fargo joke makes very little sense in the album, but there's a giant, you know, carriage right behind him. So in the special, it's like, oh, okay, well, the carriage, that's Wells Fargo, and now the Wells Fargo wagon coming rolling in makes sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you find that the album felt a little... If you think about the album, do do you find it was a tighter experience than maybe it would have been like live? Because he seems to carry on a bit more in the special. Um, well, I did notice a couple of very obvious uh, edits of applause breaks. Yeah. Um, 
So I don't, I would have to watch the actual video special, which I think I've only seen clips of. I don't think I've actually yeah. sat down and watched it. It's all on YouTube. Okay. Everything is on YouTube. I know what I'm doing <laughs> when I get home tonight then. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I find some stand up albums, you know, if it's, a, if there's a lot of visual act outs, he doesn't have a lot of those I found in this album. I think you can kind of you can kind of segue through. I agree. There's a couple of really weird applause break edits, mm-hmm. like around uh, when he says, "I went to Juilliard," but we've got to have two sort of weirdly a three quarter applause break and a half applause break. That both fade out really weird. Yeah, yeah. both fade out <laughs> in like a strange later way. Yeah. Um, but if if there's anything that's kind of probably missing is this is Robin Williams in an era where he's like he is like just a ball of energy, mm-hmm. and I think a you can hear that he falls into verbal tics a lot, you know, like, God damn. And, yeah. you know, oh, baby, um, you, you know, you know, just like, you know what I mean or whatever. And he yeah. falls into that. But you know that that's probably just like verbal throwaway because he's running from one side to the other or yeah. he's, he, yeah. he's in full stream, which is probably part, you know, a presentational aesthetic that it is more deeply associated with him than you know a more traditional stand-up so 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 the album holds up but i think i think visually you would have that that increasingly wetter you know hawaiian shirt wearing you know post coke head you know just just giving it (laughs) but that's 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 interesting during this album he's in a clean phase in his life Mm -hmm. and the energy with which, like, if I didn't know, oh, yeah, no, he's clean here. If he didn't, that wasn't part of it, his act, I'd think, man, that guy is on a lot of coke. Because just the energy that he has constantly, it's, it, there's no difference from the periods when he was struggling with those demons. That energy, that he keeps it up constantly. And his material remains tight. Like, he doesn't lose the joke oh. when he's delivering that. And it just keeps it up at this pace. A guy with that kind of energy, you know, it's almost like jaw dropping to think about him on on a hell of a lot of coke. Yeah. Like like he would just evaporate, travel into a different parallel dimension or something yeah. like that. Like it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I am I'm not going anywhere with this. It's just <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like in this uh, uh, album, I you know you think about his inspirit influences that he's talked about, like Jonathan Winters. And Peter Sellers, it's it's really interesting because he, he has sort of three sort of main groups that he sort of draws from. You know, he, Winters and Sellers, both very character driven, which you know shows in all of his his bits. He's always got a character to, to drive the joke home. Nichols and May, who are very structural, and in their their it's improv was where they got their start or how they built their material up, but they use that to build the structure. And, and then you've got, you know, Lenny Bruce, Sid Caesar, Richard Pryor, who sort of all sort of push boundaries a little bit in different ways. And it's almost like you get a smorgasbord of his influences listening to this. I think, you know, I think it's interesting because I know he, he was a, he had a high level of respect, particularly for Pryor and, and Bruce. Pryor, you know, kind of as a contemporary because Pryor was, you know, known for for being deeply authentic and challenging in, in that authenticity. 
stories told from his own personal experience, particularly horrible mm-hmm. at times. And, and, you know, you can tell that he's, you know, half this album is, is, is built around that, you know, mm-hmm. as a reformed alcoholic, you know, cocaine addict, etc. Plus, you know, I think his son is relatively young at this, at mm-hmm. this point, is only about three or four years old. So that's all, you know, you know, kind of, kind of broadly accessible, you know, the, the, the arc of, of relationships and, and ultimately childbirth and childhood. But it's, you know, it kind of runs counter to the fact that even as a kid, you know, yeah, drug use and, and genitalia and sex and stuff like that was like, was older than you, but it felt like a safe, it still felt safe. There, there, you know, it was authentic ish. Whereas the winter's influence or the seller's influence, you know, and that kind of style that he had built up as just like manic characters, not really sitting on an idea for too long, you know, like that, that I think kind of rings out personally, I found, found that's the stuff that kind of rings out more true. The authenticity it's there. It's a, it's a, it's germinating an idea. But he's not going to live in that. I I found, like, even when he had a joke that didn't land, you were still laughing because by the time your brain was like, oh, you know, I didn't like that as much as I think I liked it. He's already, like, two jokes down the road. Yeah, he's gone. Like, he didn't give you time to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, probably the, you know... once he delves into his political segment, his his Reagan through line of Reagan as a as an animatronic Jim Henson puppet and the Hall of Presidents, kind of crossing into the the Gaddafi stuff with throwaways to to. I got, I'm going to get the name wrong. P. W. Botha. Yeah. Yeah. The wonderful the wonderful leader of apartheid <laughs> South Africa. Uh, there we go. But that that was probably the most structural built material mm-hmm. everything else uh well and in fairness probably the drug stuff it was once he started to move into the the more relationship driven stuff it was it was it was less looser. it was looser yeah, it yeah. was more i'm just kind of gonna go on a story mm-hmm. this is my stab at authenticity which because i'm clean now it's more of a this is about family this is my place in the world he doesn't have a grand observation about it, yeah. other than I don't know how this is going to go. But in a, in a in a way, like because like listening to it, it was almost like it was three acts. Like yeah, the, the, like it was like a three act play, like with the first bit being like his demons, his drugs, his addiction, like all the the hijinks that he got up to earlier in his career. Mm-hmm. Then it's sort of like the authoritarian and like you know where's this world going? Are we going to blow ourselves up? And then he's like at the end, it's like his son saying, you know, fuck it. You know, so it's like, you know, it does feel loose. The family or family stuff does, you know, feel loose. But I almost think that's intentional. Like, is it possible that he that might have been his goal? Is um, like, like lull you into a sense of ease with that? That's an interesting, yeah, yeah. that's an interesting theory of, yeah, like look how you know, starting with like look how fucked up I've been, look how fucked up the world has been, and tense, 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 and then just sort of like, well, here's what life is now. Yeah. That's an interesting, that's an interesting theory. Just I mean, it's like his work, you know, even at its most manic and darkest, like his comedy has always had like a core of 
kindness in it, even when yes. he he doesn't, mm-hmm. even when he's treading where he maybe shouldn't, um, or maybe yeah. is doing it in a way that he shouldn't. He's doing it from a always seems to be a genuine place of kindness, and that seems to be like any comedian, anybody who's interacted with him, you know, even either, you know Mark Maron, the most the most giant curmudgeon in the universe, mm-hmm. seems to be just genuinely enjoy around this guy well well, even in toronto you know there's like you know there was there's the legendary stories of him improvising with like i guess that would have been like when naomi sneakers was on main stage stage, yeah and uh you know sort of the the random drop-ins at the rivoli of the alt dot where he would just suddenly pop up yeah dropped into spirits with joanna's room Mm -hmm. uh him and lewis black the same night i believe that's Uh, his bits actually on that's also on youtube yeah yeah. (laughs) i was watching that earlier today too but any local comic who had the privilege of sort of being around it, it mm-hmm. you know, everybody was kind of universal. It was just like he was generous. I mean, you know, there was a, a little bit of showboating at times, but it's like it's Robin Williams. Yeah. You, know, you, get to, yeah. you get to do whatever the fuck you want. Man. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and everybody like sort of had that same kind of chorus. It's like he was he was the polkaroo yeah. in, in Toronto comedy <laughs> yeah. for a period there. There was just a story told uh, online. Um, UCB just had their Del Close Marathon, and, and uh, it's going to be moving to L.A. soon. But there's been a lot of stories about uh, the Del Close Mar- Marathon, the big improv festival in New York, and um, and, and their Ask Cat show, which just celebrated an anniversary, which is an improv form that they do weekly. Um, but he guested on one of those shows, uh, I guess, in L.A., and was really showboating, and one of the performers decided he wasn't going to let him get away with it and then it, it didn't go so well when he tried to <laughs> when he tried to to you know to rein him in um but there, these these stories keep yeah coming up and and certainly when he died there was just this like just story after story after story like all positive 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 um about people running into him places and him you know picking up the tab for people in restaurants you know for that he didn't even know and like yeah, it just, it's constant. I don't know if I've ever heard a, a negative story about an encounter with him. Yeah, it's funny, like, you know, juxtapose that with, like, the other comic who had, you know, who has a lot of these random encounter stories around him is Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. But the Bill Murray stories feel almost like, is he making fun of what's going on right now? Whereas, yeah. whereas Robin <laughs> Williams, it always feels genuine. And kind of tying this back to how we got into this particular rabbit hole in a fun one mm-hmm. is, is is you know you you referencing like the kindness in his material and i think that's i think that's also why sort of in his later career once he started playing darker villain type characters like one hour photo and so forth i think the reason why people reacted so strongly to those even if the film was you know transcendent in his success or just not um I think people were always aware of that because you recognize that he was talented and that he could go in there. I think the scary thing for people, and I think in my, at least in my own viewing, the frightening thing was that you, you could almost relate to the, the monsters that he was creating yeah. because in some ways, you know, you, you trusted him and any character he's played has always had a sense of, you know, humanity that is probably at its most honest and pure because that's part of who he is. So his film roles like Adrian Cronauer or, or, or in Goodwill Hunting, character names, mm-hmm. you know, were lost. But those resonated because, you know, you believed him because he could convey something that was just a part of his person. 
And I think even even if he is doing something, you know, controversial or or uh, you know a bit uh, avant garde for the time or whatever like that, he he never fully pulls away from that. I mean, and too, like you look at his peers. It was a very interesting period in comedy when he's going to, because, like, as you said, you know, Richard Pryor was kind of a peer, but like he's also felt like he was almost like a protege of him because yeah, he's hung definitely... in the clubs and the, during the, the that era. But you also have like, you know, um, oh Jesus, my brain is completely here. We can save the day. Oh, uh, Andy Kaufman, Kaufman. <laughs> yeah, Andy Kaufman, who you know he he would meet in San Francisco in grocery health food stores and and they would just talk you know yeah. so it's like he had a, an interesting like they had of that group like it, 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 how do you think they all sort of came away from that era of comedy out west well i mean it depends on which era we're i mean at the time the special came out we were in a boom um, and, and similar to i think the way we are right now where there was just so much comedy being produced and on you know on cable and yeah. maybe you can speak to this a bit better but um uh but you know talking even yeah the 70s i mean was he was he a comedy store guy yeah he was his yeah. comedy store and when he was in new york uh, the comedy seller and improv were, the seller uh, yeah oh. so he you talked oh, and i was listening to i'd listened to the marin interview okay. just to hear him talk about the joke theft accusations um and he's like, yeah, no, I'd just hang up, uh, hang out in the, the the olive tree, and I didn't watch the other people. I just went out, did myself, and then we just hung out. That's that was more recent, though, right? That he was hanging out. It was mostly West Coast based during yeah. the seventies. Yeah, he was he, he was pretty San Fran heavy. Yeah, and yeah. Like that was his kind of home base mm-hmm. when he was kind of growing growing through it. I think I think the interesting thing though is. Robin Williams doesn't feel doesn't entirely feel feel like a definitive stand-up. No. Robin right. Williams is is Robin Williams is like, you know, what you'd call in musical theater a triple threat. But he he because he did a lot of things and had a lot of natural talents. I don't think stand-up was probably what his I mean, it it made a name for him. It created opportunities for him. His uniqueness was probably more built around it's the energy level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the character work. It's probably to your point, the, the, you know, there's a, there is an authentic layer of kindness under underneath whenever he's being a dickhead. Yeah. You know? And I mean, let's be and honest, he was never really a, a, a real dickhead in his, no. in his standup. There's nothing that he says that's controversial. Mm-hmm. There's some, you know, statements made that are dated certainly and, and references to, you know, things that, okay, maybe today would be maybe more along Jeff Dunham's line of <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting going back. Like if we if we do this sort of side beat, you know, in given sort of the contemporary conversation around around identity, and gender, and and everything else therein, this is a for 1986. I was surprised at how non how unproblematic mostly most of, it, yeah. most of it was. I found you know some of the sort of like more gender skewed jokes a woman president there would never be any wars except for every 28 days of severe mm-hmm. negotiations mm-hmm. some of the voices that you know you'd say were appropriated but were never done in 
as as a as a punch down. It was always about pushing back mm -hmm. uh, against some kind of established order. But there's a uh, there's not there's it feels more hacky as, now yeah. as opposed to something where you're like oh you know when he's doing certain character voices it always feels like he's he's just he's just doing a character yeah but thinking back to you know as young comedy nerd at this page too like thinking about the other stuff that you see like in the multitude of television shows set against a brick wall mm -hmm. uh no oh god in that era yeah yeah like know. there weren't a lot of people doing this sort of you know kinetic like there's kinnison well i mean there's bobcat but yeah bobcat um, kinnison yeah. but they're both very like they weren't character driven in the same way oh, like they, they, were, they were they were the character they yeah. didn't have him character. sliding from character to yeah. character yeah. and and you know there was this has felt more it just felt more creative to me as a kid at the time as like oh williams yeah, was an actor well williams was a character actor or mm -hmm. an actor with a strong character capability who told partial jokes sometimes fully formed jokes but like joke rhythms mm -hmm. yeah. whereas you know in an era of of you know where rage comics were starting to emerge where where um you know controversial comics were starting to emerge the foundations for for you know the the confrontationally like blue comic comedy of the late 80s and into the 90s was was yet was sort of in its foundation phase mm -hmm. like he's he's not he's not the joke writer yeah. that that though some of those most of the guys are in that era he's he's different than them he operates in the same kind of class and in the same with the same kind of respect i think amongst those peers but he's but he's He's something else. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like you said. There's like a, with the com uh, the the family stuff. There's a looseness to it, and I, and I think it's the the feeling of laughter that he's shooting for, as opposed to, you know, it's almost because we we just we, not too long ago we did Steve Martin's Let's Get Small, yeah, which is not too much before this album, like maybe five six years, yeah, um, and you know Steve Martin is a meticulous craftsman in every single element yeah. of any joke that he constructs from beginning to end. And so, I mean, like, he's almost like, a, if you had to put it in, a, in a, a graphic arts term, I'd say he's like a draftsman, where he draws every single little nut oh, and yeah, bolt yeah, yeah. and sure. every element of the joke. Whereas it feels like, listening to this, Williams is almost like an impressionist. Yeah. He, he, he kind of, like, paints in the, in, to give you the feeling of what you're hearing or what you're seeing. Yeah. Or, or makes it sound that way maybe in some yeah. ways. I mean, the, the, all the, the whole intro, you know, is sort of constructed, yeah. I think to feel improvised yeah. when he's looking around the theater and making the jokes, but like, he's written that. He's written that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. How much of that feeling is, is, is calculated. Well, I like, think... like when we were talking about the Smothers Brothers when we were last here, mm -hmm. it takes a very talented person to seem bad at making music. It takes a very talented person to make something that's being written feel improvised. Sure. And he can do that. Yeah. And that, that's, I think, really He impressive. can. Well, also kind of like, you know, our shared experience about this is, is definitely we were of a much more youthful age yeah. when, when this was a very present and very active album. And I'll admit, I always had hugely fond and monumental memories of the thing. Mm -hmm. But over the years, just sort of lost what the structure was until I listened to it again. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 
Uh, I remember that. I remember that. But but I think I think to your point, why this thing resonated at that at that age. There are references that I would not have gotten and did not get. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, like so many things, I was so into in that era. It it came with time. I think where his style worked, particularly for me as a kid, was like I recognize. I knew who the president of the United States was. I, mm-hmm. I, I knew sort of who some of the figures that he was talking about. I didn't know who Placido Domingo was. I didn't know who. Oh, see, I know. knew that, but, but I, I didn't know some of the, yeah, some of the political figures. But I, but I knew bits and bobs of some mm. of that stuff. I had no, you know, connection into yeah. childbirth or anything like yeah. that. But the voices and the and the the. If he tells a joke that's built on a reference, I'm probably more into it based on presentation. Yes. And then when I get a reference, it's I'm really into that joke. Yeah. You know, I remember being, you know, as a kid, like football coach coaching a ballet squad. This is me as a small town figure skater, you know, like <laughs> or or a choreographer coaching a football team. I mean, that that shit was gold as far as mm-hmm. I was concerned. Because it was just like, yeah, I, I see that. I understand what that juxtaposition is. That's a, that's a great gag. Yeah. But, but, you know, I liked, you know, I had been to Disney, so I knew what the Hall uh-huh. of Presidents were. So th- that equating of Reagan in that context was like, hey, I, I love that. That's amazing. But, but I, still, I still was along for the ride. I'm kind of lost in a thought, but I think we know what, what I'm yeah, I mean, I, I, I had the same situation where I think a lot of the references, I know a lot of the references were lost on me. Like, I, and and even just some wordplay, like, it wasn't until tonight where I, I actually got, are you Russian? Yes. Yeah. And I, I felt so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, I'm like, oh, fuck off. I get it. Okay. No, actually, that was a joke that surfaced for me uh, when I listened to this last week for like the first time as well. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but there is a joy when you, like, I, I also think there's a joy when when albums like this that, that were definitely of a cert for our generation foundational, you know, other entertainment from that period. I think of like, kind of like legendary things like the SCTV 1984 mm-hmm. new year's episode. That is just yeah. a deep cut mm-hmm. on, on Orwell, um, um, bizarrely. And, or, or there are very specific jokes in Ghostbusters, a movie that was very popular with young kids that are, at an nth level above yeah. that, that as an adult, like, you know, re-experiencing some of that going, Oh my God, I, I, for years I've been quoting this and it's only now yeah. that it's kind of sinking in. I now have the life experience to get that. Yeah. yeah. The fact that Winston Zeddemore and Ghostbusters is only making 11,500 a year. It is 1980s dollars, but that is still gratuitously low. And the fact yeah. that that's a, Holy shit, that's a great throwaway joke. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I always gravitated even, you know, younger than when I listened to this. I, I, I found, I always gravitated towards, um, comedy that worked on two levels and I only got one level. Yeah. Like, yeah. like I honestly, like, you know, there was, um, there was, uh, like a kid's show in, in, you know, Winnipeg when I was growing up that I would watch at, you know, lunch hour. Um, but the host was always making like jokes to the crew almost in like a soupy sales kind of way and i knew i wasn't getting everything 
Um, and I, but I kind of liked that. And, you know, I'd watch, um, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons and there's references. Boy, oh, yeah. are there references. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way over my head. But I kind of, and I kind of knew while watching it, like, oh, some of these references are going over my head. And I don't, I don't know why I liked that. And that might be a large part of why I like this album so much. And I, like, yeah. There's so much more for me to get. Um, there's, and there's almost an evergreen quality to that because now you can go back and go, oh, I get these things yeah. that I didn't get like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, I had never seen a penis. So, like, <laughs> yeah. that... Just take his <laughs> that word on gained, it. <laughs> yeah, that gave me meaning. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it does sort of evolve as you evolve, I guess, yeah. the enjoyment of it. Well, there's also... I mean, there's also the, the kind of following on from that. The, the... No, I lost that. Never mind, guys. <laughs> Strike it from the record. Now, um, for, for me, listening to his material, it kind of, at least this album, kind of reminds me of Maria Bamford to a certain degree, how using characters to drive home a joke uh, is different, uh, obviously, uh, but, you know, the dealing with personal demons and dealing with using characters to, to help hone the joke... Um, I was talking to Jason, and he was uh, saying, you know, he felt that Jim Carrey was very influenced by uh, Robin Williams. Who do you guys feel may have oh. been influenced and derived, uh, like, you know, mm. adapted or derived lessons from his work and this album and this I era? I know. I mean, I'm thinking about Jim Carrey's, like, a Natural Act, the Showtime special. Because um, I don't know if there were, I'm trying to remember what there would be, like, character-wise in that. In that um, era, geez, or immediately after. I mean, the interesting thing, like, I mean, immediately after, sort of in the period after Williams would have left stand-up, you're going into the late 80s and the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at that time, you've got Carrie doing, uh, you know, sort of transitioning into In Living Color, doing very... Heightened characters, yeah. heightened more heightened than anything else. At which point he wasn't doing stand up, I think, anymore. Once no. he started doing In Living Color, so. yeah, he had, he had kind of gone off, and he was doing that kind of frenetic character work, yeah. and like that sort of like, I guess, 1987, 88, probably would have been when he's transitioning out. Mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing, you know, the other kind of like, the most, po- you know, one of the most popular stand ups of the day was Andrew Dice Clay, where you were completely moving, where you were moving out of, you know, where you were moving away from that kindness principle and getting into, like, just lewd, cuss, you know. Yeah, yeah, you had... Comedy as blunt force trauma. Yeah, but I mean, it's, I mean, there was as much variety then as there is now, because you had, yeah, yeah, you had your Bill Hicks, and you had your your Dice, and you had that, but then you also had your Seinfeld, and you had, uh, you know... Uh, observational stuff started coming, you know, once once Seinfeld became bigger, think, that became, became a trend. Yeah. But I think, yeah. but I think comedy was trying out a lot of different things mm-hmm. in that period. I, I kind of feel like I don't know if anybody was really doing Williams much. But what, in what that about era. now? Like looking at comedians now, now do, you, do you see anybody who maybe drew from from With the energy level? I mean, sort of in, like out of the alt world. Oh, I was going to say like from the from from a more alt world. I mean, Pat Oswalt has got used to have the energy 
but Patton Oswalt oh, doesn't God. do character. No, and, and definitely is, yeah, doesn't have that. His character is him. Yeah. Angry um, nerd when he wants to be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, who's, who's really physical in Outside that way of... and frenetic that way? I don't. We it's moved it. We, yeah. It's it's. I mean, if anything, it kind of goes back mm-hmm. to something I was saying earlier. It's like he he doesn't feel like a a traditional stand up yeah. even now. Like like because he's an actor who is up there doing stand up as opposed mm-hmm. to a stand up who is like a pure stand up like that that you know you you compare your credits like that that justifies you as a pro that get, allows you to call yourself a thing mm-hmm. like that kind of fraternity or sorority within that world mm-hmm. whereas i think i think there was respect that he was allowed to live in it yeah. because and, he was great at he, it yeah, but i don't like, think he specialized yeah. in a way he's kind of a unique flower <laughs> he is, <laughs> and there's he, nobody quite like him he's it, yeah yeah and and I think now he's more recognized as just a very authentic, char- you know, character performer. The stand-up is just one part of it. It's more of an uh, as a tool to watch him just do wildly referencey characters. I mean, you could say that if there was something he was doing a lot of was throwing a reference, doing just enough of a reference to get the joke off of the off of the reference to pull you into the next joke. Mm-hmm. and the next joke and if and that kind of predated a much more meta era yeah that, that started to emerge like late 90s but probably became mainstream around season three of community <laughs> you, know, you know like like not that community was the mainstream piece but that was sort of the period where suddenly everybody felt like hey i got permission to talk a lot about star wars tonight you know like, yeah. and i think I kind of, I kind of wonder if, if anything, that might be what he is more of a precursor of, because what came immediately after him was almost a reaction to everything that those, sort of like, that old guard had kind of done then, because when you're thinking about, you know, observational humor or or, kind of confrontational gross out, um, or or anything that was like weird character or more or more frenetic was coming out of the sketch world at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kids in the hall yeah. in yeah. living color through yes, Jim Carrey, but also, you know, Damon Wayans was doing a lot of that yeah. work. Yeah. Um, Garrett Top. <laughs> Gallagher. You know, Gallagher. I mean, that, that was, that was kind of, it was, it was much more performance based forms that was kind of carrying on the tradition. Yeah. That would be my armchair argument, I guess, if we're yeah. going to, now, I mean, I, I... In the absence of being able to think of it. Have, I'm sure there was a guy in Iowa who was the, just the fucking bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we have a few questions from the audience. Um, so I, you know, I think you've kind of spoken to this, but when you think of Robin Williams, do you think of him as an actor or a comedian first? I think of him as a great talk show guest first. That's a, that's a great answer, actually. Um, yeah, I... And probably probably think of him as a stand-up almost last because it was almost his yeah it was his talk show appearances and you know he was uh he was he, he was one of the last uh johnny carson tonight show guests yeah. and um yeah he just had that explosive energy and then yeah it, i think we all have our you know specific movies that we immediately think of when we think of him um yeah. 
and then all the other movies that we don't immediately think of, yeah. and then and then you death know, then the stand up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, the, I the death, death of John Stewart's film career. <laughs> oh, it was. It, yeah, I could I could talk about that too, but um, yeah, that yeah, films like that, like you know, I first ones I saw were you know, Good Morning Vietnam, and I think The Fisher King. Which is you know dead there's poet a, society and dead, then dead poet society, yeah. Um, so yeah it's it's I guess whatever whatever age you were. Yeah, I would you know I would echo that. You know I probably discovered him because of the stand up album, and uh, that his stand up is probably the least I think of other than the fact it's just like hey that was a really great album right like it is yeah. it is those kinds of characters this is Doubtfire Goodwill Hunting, and just. Robin Williams as a presence, just as a presence mm-hmm. out there. Um, you know, it was you rooted for him. Yeah. He was a he was a he was a true. In 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 the entertainment world, he was somebody that you rooted for, and there was always a sense of genuine. Uh, there was a genuine feeling of like, almost like the Sally Field. You like me, you really like me. Mm-hmm. Him winning an Oscar and. And for Goodwill Hunting, yeah, is one of is one of the most moving yeah. uh, uh, acceptance speeches because he's not sad, and he's not, but he's he's truly surprised, mm-hmm. yeah. and he's a guy who always feels like he's in control, and he still goes up there and does a bit, <laughs> <laughs> like like he never n- isn't on, yeah. which I think is part of the tragedy for a guy that carried so many de- demons that yeah. that he when he wasn't on, what was he? And, and, and it, that is a darkness that only he knew and understood. And, I, and I, you know, talking to that, like the the addiction in the early parts of his career, now in retrospect, very much feels like self medication to address these like depression, and especially as a, a young comic facing a lot of hurdles in a, a you know because being a comic is never easy, especially in a hard room where, you know, he talks about constantly getting heckled and stuff like that. And it, it, it makes you wonder, you know, it, what his humor, what his comedy would have been like if he had been, you know, more effective in dealing with these demons. It's, it's a, it's a hard thing to kind of place because I mean, some people would point to, you know, the fact that he died by suicide, although, and I'm, I might be getting some of this wrong, but I think, you know, based on pathology, he was he was actually pretty advanced in a in a you know in a dementia variation yeah. where mm-hmm. he was he was not healthy, and and that was probably magnifying any of any of those kinds of depressive traits early in his career. I mean, that the the weird you know dichotomy with him is like his his peers were recognizing him as amongst one of the best they'd ever seen. Reeve and Mandy Patinkin and 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 mm-hmm. you know all of all of all of his contemporaries were just like this guy is insane, like this guy is amazing, and and so and he is given prestigious scholarships and acceptances and and things like that, whereas he's still gotta like burn it out, like drag it out, yeah. And he's and he experienced incredible success early in his career off a flash in the pan character that resonated on happy days. Like this guy yeah. is this guy this guy was huge right from the start. But he wa- until he wasn't and he yeah. was again and he was depressed and struggling and and addicted and and that guy that guy is a phoenix. Like he 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 burned 
and then reconstituted more times than most people get in their lives. Yeah. Which is a fascinating thing. I think, if anything, like what he became in terms of what everybody thinks about him, his, his legacy is probably secured by the fact, I hate to say this because he, he suffered, because I think people could, people rooted for themselves because they saw this guy come through it. Um, now oh, that sounded so pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, I mean, good. you know, it's like having watched Nanette recently and the fact that there's like a yeah. whole, like, I don't need to suffer for your benefit, like kind of thread in that. Particular. Yeah. I think we're all, all of our heads are a little bit uh... <laughs> <laughs> skewed by, by a particularly revela- revelatory, uh, yeah. stand up special. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, um, Sherilyn, I'm going to start with you. It's the last question for the evening. Um, what was your favorite part of the album, and what would you have left out? Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, I think my favorite part was probably all of the drinking stuff, just because yeah. it was, you know, there was a darkness to it, but it was also so silly, and I like, I like that contrast um what i would love would have left out um you know i i as much as it does in its way hold up you know if i was making an album in 1986 this came out yeah i'd be like well maybe the rig and stuff isn't gonna you know be evergreen there maybe you know the, a lot of the political references maybe you know, wouldn't, it wouldn't put on an album, but it, you know, it's still, it, I, I, I don't listen to it and think like, Oh, I wish he'd cut that. Even though, you know, there's a couple of mm-hmm. jokes that seem like they were maybe old. Even then he's talking about Reagan in a, in a debate and how he was in a debate. But by then, like when would Reagan was last, in his second term, he was in his second term. Yeah. So halfway through it. Yeah. So how old was that joke when he tossed it in there? So you go, okay, maybe you could, you could trim that, but also the argument is it can be made the other way. Yeah. So, yeah. And Peter, um, my favorite bit, well, my favorite bits are probably it's, it's, it's the ballet sequence and yes, drinking marijuana, cocaine that, that whole sequence is just like it doesn't stop mm-hmm. right from the moment he says howdy in the opening and then kind of runs it through that's that's just glorious i actually i think you know my observation listening to it now is that the you know you know a couple of the jokes are a bit offside now kind of with contemporary flavor mm-hmm. certainly around uh the Qaddafi sequences but but it's pretty fascinating. You know, the thrust of the Reagan jokes are, this is a guy who's patently unqualified. <laughs> and, uh, and, sadly, and, that's so and, relevant today. <laughs> and the the Qaddafi stuff, it's Qaddafi, you know, multiple forms before. I mean, the Libyans were the, the villains in Back to the Future 1. But, <laughs> but you know, concerns of, terrorism infecting the discourse the commentary about the national rifle association you know all of that stuff is just like it's it's horrifying how how still contemporary it feels yeah so so i agree that some of that political stuff is just like oh you're speaking to a particular time 
And during the Clinton era, you'd listen to that and go, oh, it wasn't, isn't that cute? Yeah. Uh, but, but now it's, it's, you know, it speaks to our own current times. Just yeah. change the names and just, yeah, and it's, you'd it's, have the exact, the jokes would work. It's like, thank God, yeah, that, thank yeah. God we don't have apartheid era South Africa anymore, but, but everything else is pretty much, yeah. I, 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 I found that the, I found actually that the childhood stuff was probably the most undercooked. It felt the most undercooked in terms of like pure jokes or freneticism. Mm-hmm. It felt more, he felt more traditional stereotypes. He wasn't doing men versus women jokes, but he was. And, and um, I think they're relatable to people. I have a child now. I, I remember some of those experiences. And yeah, it gives me a smile. That's probably the most, it's probably the most accessible stuff. It's probably the least honest stuff mm-hmm. on the album. So there's, that's probably the area that I struggle with the most. Back third is what I struggle with, because how do you how do you come out of like that opening twenty? <laughs> like, yeah. and also t- you know, you know, distance from a story tends to make the story a bit better. So if his you know his kid was still young and he had only recently gone through that, really great. The, the perspective, you know, the longer you're away, you know, from it, the better you can comment on it. So if it was yeah. still new to him. You know, there's insight that he still had to develop there. Yeah, he still didn't have the answers, which is kind of how he ends it. Right, exactly. I mean, this isn't a vision. He's not a vision comic who's going to, like, change the way you look at the world. Yeah. But he's got a lot of great jokes about the world that he sees. Mm -hmm. And and good for him on that, you know. Terrific. Well, um, any closing thoughts? Anything you'd like to share before we wrap it up? Great album. (laughs) <laughs> you know what uh, a joy to go back and revisit this because for 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 all of those things and like you know to kind of bring it back personally it's like he's a guy that i i i enjoyed his things with my father and he looks like my father my father <laughs> looked like him and there's and it's just it's it's nice there's a weird personal association yeah, yeah. it was nice to relive that it was nice to relive that excellent yeah he's kind underneath it all he's kind right and, so you know that's that's the that's a beautiful yeah, thing yeah. in a in a takedown era we it yeah. reminds you how much we miss that yeah where where there is a a generosity of spirit in our performing culture uh at a time where we're also discovering that our heroes are potentially monsters, monsters. yeah yeah i think we're gonna circle back to kindness a bit more and i think I think we're due for yeah. more of that, and especially with the current climate. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, we're. we're I love satire, obviously, um, yeah. but you know there is so much of it, and it is a lot of, um, you know, it. Well intentioned, obviously, everyone wants you know to see the right thing be done for people, um, but I do think there is just a kind of a, a a. a loose joy that is going to find its way back into everything. Yeah. I think that's a great observation because, you know, there's a bullying culture regardless of the divide, but the, but these days there's a, you're there, we are in a tribal culture right now. And I well, think like at some people point think our, trolling is humor, you know, and yeah. trolling is yeah. humor. It's being a dick. Well, we're, <laughs> yeah. I think we're, we're due for exactly what you said, Cheryl, and Mike. We're, we're due for a period where somebody will discover that optimism will win 
what can access will win. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be political. It's going to be emotional. Yeah. It's going to be about, you know, your core. You can, you're not necessarily punching up or punching down. You just, it's just connecting. You're just gonna, yeah, it's just connecting. You're just going to throw some shit out there. Yeah. And see what sticks. Yeah. And if it kind of gets on somebody, eh, that's probably not so bad if I didn't mean to throw it at you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, big thanks to Peter Hill, who you can find on Twitter at Peter James Hill, and Sharon Johnson, who is on Twitter at Third B. You can also find me, Matt or Dill, on Twitter at Common Person. Comedy Album Book Club also has its own Twitter account at CABC Podcast, or it can be found at our website, ComedyAlbumBookClub.com, as well as on Facebook, where you can keep up to date on special events, suggest albums, or guests. You can also download us on all your favorite podcast apps. Please rate and subscribe. And once again, thanks for being for listening to Comedy Album. Thanks, everyone. Thank Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.